You're listening to the podcast version of Intrigue Explained, the weekly show where two former Australian diplomats and their friends break down the biggest stories in international news in a way that hopefully entertains and resonates with you. Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of Intrigue Explained for 2023. I'm Dmitry Grosbinski and with me for this brand new season is our intrepid co-host who in rehearsals referred to himself as sexy several times, John from International Intrigue. Hello, John. Thanks for that, mate. I appreciate you sharing the quiet bits out loud. Absolutely. I, I mean, I didn't record it for your co-workers, so I thought we could relive the moment together. Oh, very kind of you. Very kind of you. I mean, it's true. I don't deny it. But yeah, well, anyway, I'm thrilled to be back with you having a go at telling people what we think on YouTube. Yeah. And listen, I mean, we had a show planned. We had dreams for what we wanted to talk about. And then something magical happened. <laughs> John, yeah. to tell us about the balloon. So, I mean, for background, we've been on this call for about 20 minutes, just kind of prepping this. And all of the conversation was about the Chinese spy balloon that was found late last night somewhere over Montana, which really has <laughs> set me into fits of giggles, but also Twitter has just had, this is, this is what Twitter is designed for, I think, to kind of speculate about what balloons floating over countries is about. So, so just to be clear, this is a Chinese balloon that is considered to be potentially a spy balloon. So a balloon equipped with spy cameras right? This isn't like, no one thinks that this thing is full of poison gas, like in the Dark Knight or whatever. This is a reconnaissance thing. Why is that, this? A... I mean, given that I'm based in the US, let's hope so, right? It's <laughs> drifting my way. Yes, just I think that's... get onto your roof and just start blowing in the opposite <laughs> direction. We've got the technology. Go back to where you came from. But yes, to answer your question a little bit more seriously, it, I think that's, I mean, from the reports that we have, obviously, in, in the open source world, that's what it seems like it is, that it's a high altitude balloon, which serves a functionally the same purpose as a low orbit satellite taking photos. I was interested that um, a one, one, let's call him an expert, someone on Twitter said that essentially they provide much higher fidelity photos because they're mm. lower in the atmosphere. But you know, you can actually control where they go because you just adjust the height and find a wind that goes in the way that you want it to go. So they're kind of like sat satellites. They stay up there for ages. They take good photos. They're hard to detect, detect by radar. So even though the whole thing sounds deeply stupid, there is, I think, quite a history to using balloons as, as pseudo satellites. While we were prepping this call, you explained to me that there are like practical reasons why shooting this thing down is like not yeah. the obvious solution. Because I mean, right. it's in US airspace, so it wouldn't be an act of war or anything. Like you're allowed to shoot down spy tech that's flying over right. Montana. Of course, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I mean, there's no people on board, so, you know, there's none of that concern. I think that you know of. Well, that's right. That's, that's exactly right, that, that we know of. There were reports, I think, yesterday of, or late last night this morning of Biden saying we should shoot it down, the Pentagon saying we can't guarantee that it won't, you know, splinter into a thousand pieces and kill people on the ground. So that, that's one consideration is that you you don't want to like blow up a balloon and, and I mean, it's not funny, but like, you know, cause damage to people on the ground. The second thing is like these, these balloons are relatively cheap in the military, you know, world, maybe six figures shooting a missile, certainly shooting like a, a SAM, like a ground to air missile would be, 
you know, multiple millions of dollars, perhaps even more than that, if you, you know, set up a, a Raptor to do it. And then I was reading something that said, you know, it's not at all clear that they're easy to hit because they're so high up. So you could have this farcical situation where the US military can, you know, intercept an ICBM at, you know, at a moment's notice somewhere over the Pacific with 99.9% accuracy, but can't shoot down what is a functionally 250 year old technology. So I guess what we're really saying is that if you are somewhere in the continental United States and you have access to a hot air balloon and like a dart gun, you could be in line for a very lucrative defense contract right now. Call somebody in the Pentagon and just pitch you a boomerang and a bunch of helium could really preserve the integrity. As you're speaking, I'm reminded of that chap, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, who tied a bunch of balloons to his chair and was radioed in by passing airline captains because he went so high up on a chair with a shotgun with the idea of shooting balloons down to bring himself back down. Do you remember that are, story? Are you sure this wasn't the movie Up? Yeah, I think, I think it was probably the inspiration. Either what? one way or the other, they were inspired by each other. Right. But, you know, international relations is a very serious field. Defense is full of somber professionals. And we can only hope one of them has a very large stick with a hook. <laughs> As the trillion dollar US defense budget is apparently powerless in the shape. Also, like, they're worried about it falling on people in Montana. Right. There, there yeah. are four people in Montana. Like, get, tell them to go inside. <laughs> I mean, the other option we have is obviously just wait for six hours if it's anything like my birthday balloons they'll run out of helium anyway. uh, I, they're probably made in the same factory i mean this is we know your <laughs> balloons are made so that was that was by way of, of introduction we're very serious people former australian diplomats as you can tell our country's proud of us and proud to be associated with us in abstention but since this is our first show i mean that was i mean maybe that was fun but what we're going to try to do on the show is something a little bit more serious. John, since this is the first one, do you want to maybe remind people of what the hell we're trying to do? Yeah, so I mean, I, well, I, I'm, I'm the founder of a, of a geopolitical media company that has a daily newsletter, which is designed to sort of keep folks who maybe aren't experts in this space or, you know, don't keep super close tabs on what's going on around the world. It's designed to keep those kinds of folks informed and a little bit entertained, just like the balloon story as you do it. So that, you know, this stuff can be, you know, geopolitics in general can be made to be very dry. So we're trying to make it a bit more interesting so that you can kind of know what's going on around the world without falling asleep. So it's a daily newsletter. It's called International Intrigue. You can Google that, or I think we've got a link at some point in the, in the show notes. And the idea of this chat is just to go a little bit deeper to riff on a few things that we cover in the newsletter each week bit of context, you know, and, and ideally some some anecdotes and some reflections on our personal experience in that field. Same vibe though, not taking ourselves too seriously. The idea is to make you enjoy this kind of stuff because God knows if, you, if you're reading, you know, reports from the think tanks in, in DC or Geneva or wherever you are, you're going to fall asleep quickly. So something I realized that they kind of, I don't know if they deliberately, but they sort of deliberately taught us as diplomats is you're in a foreign country and most people in capital don't care about most of the things coming out of it. You have to figure out a way to synthesize a lot of news in a way that desperately tries to make a desk officer in treasury give a damn. So we are trying to, to not let those skills gather dust and, and feed some of this stuff to you. We goofed around with a couple of different for show formats last year as we were beta testing this. And what we settled on, what we think we might work is every episode, we will try to deep dive on one topic, either with just the two of us or with some guests. And then we'll also give you a couple of quick hits 
on things from the newsletter that jumped out at us as worthy of maybe a few extra words. So on this show, we are going to deep dive into a new, technically, I guess, secret treaty, because they didn't tell anyone publicly they were making it, between the Netherlands, Japan, and the US to tighten or adjust export restrictions on semiconductor manufacturing equipment to China. This is actually like a hugely, potentially significant step. We don't know exactly what's in the treaty, but it could be kind of, we could be inching towards a technological cold war. And this could be, this is part of a pattern. And we really want to dive into it. I think it's super important. And it's one of those things that I think most people might, their eyes might glaze over if you're reading an article about it, but hopefully we'll try and kind of give you the quick hits on what, what I think is genuinely an important issue. This could make your PlayStation more expensive, guys. Like, tune back in. Uh, also, you know, fragmentation of the global world order and potential sort of balkanization. Yeah, the PlayStation. But I want to update my graphics card, guys. But then, so we'll, so we'll deep dive into that. But we've also got three quick stories we wanted to cover. The new Prime Minister of Fiji has ended a police cooperation agreement with China. And we want to provide some context on that and how it fits into the broader picture in the Pacific. The West has finally agreed to send tanks to Ukraine after what some view as ingenious diplomacy by the Germans and others view as prevarication for months with no particular purpose, depending on how you, how you want to take that. And finally, we'll take a quick look at the Adani Group, which is a massive Indian conglomerate that's in kind of everything from ports to, to, to I think, retail. They do lots of coal things. There were coal mines in Australia. Has been accused by a report two years in the making of corruption, money laundering, and fraud. And this is a group and its founder with very close ties to Modi, the, the head of India. And we want to kind of dive into that. So that's going to be our show if we have any time left after balloon jokes, which frankly, I hope we don't. But with that, let's let's maybe just dive straight into our, our first topic. John, do you want to maybe set us up a bit on Fiji? Yeah, okay. So the context that you kind of need to know for this is they had a, a recent election which changed the prime minister. It was formerly a guy called Frank Bainimarama who'd been in power for about 15 or 16 years. 16 years. years. Yeah, 16 years. And now they've got a, a chap in charge called Rebuka, who has actually been in charge before. He's led, I think, two coups in the past. Fiji has a rich history over the last you know, couple of decades. I think 35 years, it's had four coups. So that that's the Fiji government. It's not necessarily that stable, although oddly, in a way, it kind of is stable, despite this, what, what seems to be you know, pretty crazy instability. But the news here is that the new prime minister is moving quite quickly to change change sort of Fiji's foreign policy outlook. He's ended um, a security cooperation agreement with China and has accused or suspended the police commissioner on, on accusations of being too close to the former prime minister and too close to China. He, I, I think the, uh, the reason for ending the security cooperation, he said, was that their system of democracy and justice systems are so different to ours that we need to go back to those that have similar systems as us. And that is a fairly incendiary comment for anyone who knows how, you know, the Chinese diplomacy world works. Yeah. So it's a bit, I think it's a big deal because China has been pushing into the Pacific quite a lot lately. We had the Solomon Islands security agreement snafu late last year. You have the Pacific Islands forum. There's a bunch of controversy in there about some countries wanting to leave it at the behest of China. So this is, I mean, it's a blow for China, I would say. I think it's also one to watch. 
Yeah, just for context for viewers, the growing influence of China, the way China has been able to leverage its development, its sort of, some have accused it of envelope diplomacy, of showing up in the Pacific, has been a growing list of consternation for the West, for Australia, for the US, who see themselves being pushed out. On the other hand, I think looking at this, it's, it is possible to read too much into this. All politics is local. The commissioner that's been replaced had close ties to Banarama. This could be a sense of cleaning house or trying to secure power. Buka is playing the great game and, you know, value statements are all well and good, but he's also positioning himself vis-a-vis -vis other countries and vis-a-vis -vis kind of his opponents to draw that that contrast. So, so it is possible to go over overboard here on, you know, Chinese diplomacy has failed in the Pacific yeah. or any grand statements like that. But it is certainly one to watch. Fiji is... In terms of the Pacific Island countries, only Papua New Guinea is significantly bigger. In terms of population, Fiji has a military, unlike a lot of the other Pacific Island countries. It is kind of considered something of a regional powerhouse, and losing influence there would be a blow for, for China, no doubt. The question is, can the West capitalize? Can the West rebuild, like take this olive branch and meaningfully run with it in a sustainable way, which we... We in the West haven't always nailed that balance in the Pacific. I mean, and I guess the, the, the last thing to note is there are positive signs of Western engagement in the Pacific. This week, the US finally reopened its embassy in the Solomon Islands. So I think there is a sense that the West has to get, you know, the Pacific can't be ignored anymore if, if China is going to be really pushing for influence in there. But it's certainly one to watch. Okay, moving on to our next topic. Tanks at last, tanks at last. Thank God almighty, Ukraine has tanks at last, he said unbiasedly. Yeah, I'm going to let you do the speaking on this one, lest I get in trouble. But <laughs> uh, very briefly, uh, this is Germany's decision or final agreement to send Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. They made a decision, I think, last week or maybe maybe two weeks ago after the US did a hell of a lot of back-channel diplomacy and agreed to send its M1 Abrams tanks. There, there's something, an interesting note here is I think that the, the US is going to be manufacturing these tanks from scratch, presumably so that they don't have any super sensitive technology in them that in case the Russians capture it, they then understand how the, the US you know manufactures their tanks. But that was going to take a while. So they, the, the US was keen to have the Leopard tanks go to Ukraine in the spring while the M1 Abrams tanks get shipped probably a little bit later. So it's like, uh, you know, it was an agreement to sort of get Ukraine tanks ASAP without having the M1's Abrams go over there and have the Russians capture US armor. And they'll be they'll be powerful tools as as the as the Russians are, the all signs point to an advanced, sorry, a, a renewed offensive pretty soon, like right now even. And as the war is kind of moved into the fields and the forests of Eastern Ukraine, rather than the, uh, the cities, the tanks are more useful than they might've been this time last year. Yeah, so the, the, the most pro-tank argument basically runs like this. In order to sustain offensives come the spring, from the Ukrainian perspective, they need to be able to launch combined arms operations, which they have shown they can do and are good at, pretty much unlike the Russians, but, and tanks were the missing piece. That was the one thing that they did not have is tanks from kind of, vaguely the last five decades. They had a bunch of T-72s in storage from the Soviet Union. They had a bunch of other things. They've captured a lot of Russian armor, but Western tanks are very good. Uh, this is the pro-tank kind of argument, and it's saying this will give them the possibility to strike hard and fast 
make those breakthroughs, capitalize, encircle, and take back their territory. The kind of concerns about the tanks are there are about three or four different models of tanks going between the, the Leopard 2s, the Challengers, the Abrams, there was discussion sending French tanks. Um, so every single one of those tanks has a different logistics train, different spare parts, different kind of support, and you need to train tankers up to use them. So there is a kind of time delay element here. These are not simple machines to maintain, run, and use well. And secondly, as always, as at every time Ukraine gets anything, people start talking about escalation and is this World War III? Uh, my very unbiased opinion is no, it's not. As Joe Biden said, I think last year and is now being repeatedly quoted out of context, World War III would be if those tanks had US crews. That's the line. World War III is US personnel shooting at Russian personnel. That's at that point, we're off to the races. It's not stopping Putin trying to frame it that way, right? Like in his speech in St. Petersburg over the weekend where he yeah. said, you know, once again, we are fighting German leopard tanks on our Eastern front. You know, it narratively I mean, there's that he's doing his best, but I agree with you. It's, it's, yeah. you know, there's, it, there's a big gap between Ukrainians using equipment to defend themselves versus us getting in there and shooting Russians. By the way, I'm not a military historian, but I'm pretty sure there were no leopard tanks in world war. There were, there were other, the leopard is, I think there were panzers, there were tigers, there were all sorts of there were all sorts of things. Anyway, it's a thing I read on Twitter, so I just assume it's credible. We're really serious people on this uh, this show. You you will see. I mean, we will have to see what this all transpires to. There's been an announcement that the Abrams tanks aren't arriving for something like nine months. So you know this it's isn't fashion from scratch. Which, yeah, you know, it takes a while. It apparently takes a while to build tanks. We'll have to see how much this changes, but. I think it is, a, it is a positive sign, if you are Ukraine, that the West is continuing to expand its appetite in terms of responding to requests. After this announcement, we've now seen the US talking about providing longer range missiles in terms of ones that have a longer strike range than the H, the HIMARS, to allow Ukraine to hit, these are ground-to-ground -ground missiles, to hit Russian logistics targets further and further in the Russian rear. Which again, like that appetite is creeping upward every time the West does something and the world doesn't end. And that brings us to Adani. Yeah, so tell us can, about it. Yeah, we can get across this one pretty quickly, but it's he was, I think, until re relatively recently, the richest man in India. Oh, well, the richest man in Asia. Certainly, this is Gautam Adani. Gautam Adani. Yes, sorry, excuse me. Who's the founder of the Adani Group, which is a you know one of these classic kind of bonds villain kind of conglomerates that have their their fingers in everything i mean i shouldn't say it's a bad company but my point is it does you know coal mines manufacturing of everything finance all that kind of stuff a bit of everything but the interesting thing about that is that there is a wall street you know short selling hedge fund kind of operation research firm that has been for two years compiling a report and doing investigations on the adani group and ha and released a report that basically said it's a fraud or not quite a fraud, but you know, there's a lot of bad assets behind the screen. There's a lot of things that aren't as the Adani group projects and that they, they took out a fairly large short position on Adani and he lost, he lost, yeah, a hundred billion dollars or something in the last couple but, of weeks uh, in his personal fortune, something like that. I think that, it was right? like 36 billion, something like that. Huge amount of money, but based on this genuinely based on this wall street research firms, you know, very detailed and, and, and 
you know, I no one's come out and I, that I've seen and said it's wrong, apart from Adani themselves. But yeah. yeah, so there's obviously a lot of smoke and probably some fire. But the, the geopolitical angle here, apart from it being an interesting story, is that I think Adani himself has said that the Indian banks have 32% share of his company's loans, which is a huge amount of exposure for Indian banks to a conglomerate that they once thought presumably was blue chip, you know, AAA rated, whatever. And this report suggests that it might not be. And if there's a lot of bad assets in the Adani group that the banks weren't aware of, I think it's a small chance, but there is a chance that the Indian banking sector could be in, 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 you know, some trouble, but it's an interesting story. Even, even if you sort of don't believe that Indian banking exposure kind of situation, it's a, it's a fascinating story about how someone's wealth can go from, you know, a crazy amount to well, losing 30 odd billion dollars because of a, a research firm. And obviously there's this connection to Modi, which you might talk more about. Yeah. So I actually thought I'd provide a little bit more context just because I find this story fascinating. So first mm. Hindenburg Research, which is the New York firm that kind of dug in this, they are what's called activist short sellers. So what they do, or what they claim to do at any rate, is identify companies where not everything seems to be as it seems, where the share price they feel is a lot higher than it should be. They make a bet with Wall Street, effectively, that that price is going to go down. And then they undertake rigorous research and release a report that like exposes the company so that that price goes down. They became famous after exposing Nikola, which was the, like, it was like another Tesla, but they were making electric trucks, except they just weren't. They generated a huge amount of hype, like the share price went through the roof, but these guys discovered they weren't actually building anything, and they were like a million years away from a prototype, and the share price crashed. So these guys have basically done all of this research now on Adani, and most of the, I mean, there are, there are literally this report is there are dozens of accusations, but mostly what it comes down to is it seems like what Adani has been doing allegedly is using, yeah, using offshore accounts in Mauritius it, through like proxy companies to basically buy up their own shares in volume and to hold their own shares in volumes that they're not, they shouldn't be allowed to. So there's a lot of like, family connections going on there. There's a lot of money disappearing into black holes and there's a lot of avoidance of Indian kind of finance regulations through dodgy means. And those are the allegations. Whether this actually hurts Modi politically, it's really hard to see because this is one of those scandals that's impossible to explain to a normal person. Like, why, why do you have to have 25% of your public listed company held in public hands? And why can that not be your cousin's, like, offshore account using yeah, a subsidiary's money? I, I, like, I can't, I, I've been reading about it for a week and I don't understand it. So whether that's going to hurt him, but like Modi, when he won, flew back, flew to Delhi on an Adani plane. Like, that's how close he is to Gautam. And so there is that connection there. And you know, sleaze hurts. It and does, that, yeah. and that is our, my own graphic suite is telling us that it's time to move on to our main story. The it's AI. like, shut up nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Just chat GPT being like, guys, move on. Exactly. So our main story, John, do you want to set us up? Netherlands, yeah, Japan, well, US, chips. 
you, you did a pretty good job in the intro of kind of giving the, the top line of this story, but it is, for, for those who weren't tuning in at that point, it's the, the idea that the Japan, the Netherlands and the US reached a deal last Friday that will restrict the advanced, very, very advanced manufacturing equipment of semiconductors being exported to China. So let's, let's if we rewind just a bit for context, last October, the Biden administration put an export ban on US chips going to China and some technologies going to China, but US based or made chips and technologies. This new deal is notable because it includes the Dutch and the Japanese. And as we can get into the reason that it's notable that it includes the Dutch is because there is a Dutch company called ASML, which is the only company in the world that can produce this kind of machinery, which we'll get into that does the, the highest end chips, the super, super high end chips. So we're not talking about the kinds of chips in your PlayStation or, you know, your car or your dishwasher, that, that stuff is, is kind of, you know, cents on the dollar kind of chips we're talking about. Well, actually maybe the PlayStation one no, might be a bit more, no. but like your iPhone uses chips that, that are made with ASML's technology. Your iPhone for sure. I, maybe, maybe the best delineation is kind of like your fridge. Your, your washing machine, your, your like your dumb technologies use much bigger chips, like 20, I think the node is maybe 27 or 25 nanometer node. We, we can get them to all these, you know, technical things in a minute. But this machine that is created by the Dutch company is used for stuff to create chips that are used in things like defense technologies, surveillance, really high tech stuff that the US doesn't want the Chinese military getting its hands on. So. That, that's the kind of context. And I've thrown around a bunch of different technical terms there. So we should probably move through it in a little bit of a, 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 an orderly fashion explaining it because it's pretty complex. Yeah, absolutely. This is John and I have been deep diving on this. We're not tech guys. So if you are watching and you know one end of a screwdriver from the other, we apologize to you in advance. We will really do our yeah. best to try to, to wade through this. Yeah, God. <laughs> but to massively oversimplify uh, chips, that these kind of silicon chips are measured in nanometers. So generally, the smaller the nanometerage, the more kind of processing power, the more transistors you are able to pack into the smallest possible. The, the kind of race is who can pack the most into the smallest package. And a nanometer, uh, just to be clear, is one billionth of a meter. So we are talking human hair width size, tiny, tiny, tiny. Uh, is absolutely, these are things are microscopically, microscopically, they are manufactured through a, through a process that is like too insane to describe, but it's like you pour, you blast things with lasers, you pour silicon on them, and that leaves a trace that the circuitry then goes into. We don't pretend to understand it, but basically there is one company on earth called ASML that manufactures the machines required to make them. These machines cost something like 200 to 400 million dollars each. They require three planes to deliver to your destination. And John, as you were saying, there are teams that like live with this thing. Yeah. So like the Dutch engineers in this company are the only people on the planet who can repair them, calibrate them, fix them. So for example, you know, the TSMC, the Taiwan Semicondu Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, they have these ultraviolet lithography, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, but they will have, they'll buy one, they'll ship it out there, as you said, with trucks and planes and all that. And then the team will go and live in Taiwan inside TSMC and, and calibrate the machines, repair them when things go wrong. They are the most sensitive, 
high tech, like ridiculously complex machines that, that perhaps exist on, on, on the planet, really, when you think about it. I mean, apart from maybe some quantum computers that are being made somewhere in CERN or something, these things are absolutely, no one else knows the IP, no one else. This is not a matter of, this is really important for viewers to understand. This is not just a question of money. You cannot, you could not just build one of these if you threw $100 billion tomorrow at like Montana. You could not just build it or at Shenzhen. You could not, you can't just create this thing. They are, there are estimations that say anyone else is decades away from being able to make one of these machines. And so the, the, the strategic thinking is that if you can cut the Chinese tech sector off from this, then as John said, you potentially hamstring their military tech. But, and this is where things get really kind of complicated and politically, you also slow down the development of their tech sector as a tech sector. Right. But yeah. like, it's not just about missiles. Like this thing goes into iPhones, things goes into everything. And so there is a sense of the US, perhaps less so Europe, but the US certainly views the 21st century as a technological race with China, not just in the defense sphere, but in every technological the sphere. Ecosystem. Yeah, and you're less likely to invest, build, try things if you know that you can't get access to the the piece of technology at its core that lets you do cutting edge stuff, right? Like if I say I'm going to set up a company to do X, Y, Z, but I know that if I set it up in China, I can't get access to these chips, or it's going to be very, very difficult, or I'm going to have to, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, maybe I won't do it in China. Maybe I'll go somewhere else. One of the other things these kind of export restriction regimes allow governments like the US, but also, you know, the Netherlands already had export restrictions on the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, we should say. So they've already not been shipping them to ASML will tell you they don't ship these things to China because com- countries have had export restrictions on them for a while. We don't know what's in this agreement, but there's a, there's a theory that maybe it expands it to the slightly less complex DUV kind of things, which allow you to make the slightly larger, but still stupidly advanced, I think it's seven nano uh, NM chips. So, so there's, it's not quite clear exactly what they're stopping. But what it allows governments to do is know where this stuff is going and control it. So if you have an export restrictions in place, businesses can apply for waivers from it. They can apply for permission. And so one thing the US did after October was issue a bunch of expert permits to companies that were shipping things to China for Chinese companies that supplied US companies that could not function without the things the Chinese companies were supplying. So it is this bizarre scenario where we're all hugely dependent on these supply chains, but these things are made in like individual companies and individual factories around the world. We talked about TSMC before, this Taiwanese company. They have a 90% market share in chips. It's them, advanced chips, sorry, yes, I should, good good clarification, advanced chips. So it's them and I think Samsung and Intel do a little bit. I think certainly Samsung. And then like, that's it. So some advanced chips too, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's effectively two two companies, but really one company and effectively one giant factory. Exactly. And that kind of brings us to Taiwan of if 
what are the, what do you think the the longer term implications are of this kind of thing? What are the Chinese thinking right now? Yeah, so I think well, obviously, obviously they're not happy about any of this, but it, I think what it does is it affirms probably a fairly long held view in the Chinese political establishment, at least in some parts of the Chinese political establishment, it's been long held. The idea that America isn't playing fair. It, it really just wants to keep China down. It doesn't want to share the rest of the world. And I, and I, you know, I think they're right now, but it, it sort of allows those kind of more, let's call them hawkish, but you know, probably fairly realistic, but hawkish voices in the Chinese system to say, we told you so. This isn't collaboration. This isn't, you know, co you know, competition, friendly competition. This is them trying to keep us down and we need to adopt a, 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 a footing that allows us to, to to push back. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a military footing, but it does mean things like folks in the Chinese system who have been advocating for technological independence from the rest of the world and for, for the idea that China needs to develop these indigenous capabilities, it gives them a hell of a lot of ammunition to say, we will not survive in the 21st century unless we can do all of this stuff in-house. So you better put more money, more effort, all that kind of stuff into doing it ourselves, which obviously has the ramification of making them less connected to the world or less reliant on the rest of the world, which if you subscribe to the general theory of connectedness makes war less likely is a bad thing. And as far as Taiwan, you know, one of the, one of the arguments I've heard a lot of particularly semiconductor analysts make, but geopolitical analysts as well say that the less that China needs TSMC, because TSMC makes these advanced chips and China can buy them from TSMC, the less that China needs TMC or is allowed to deal with TSMC, the less they have holding them back from an invasion of Taiwan. No. The, the first thing to note about that is the mid day one of the war, TSMC is destroyed. It's probably being blown up by the Taiwanese engineers or the US military as sabotage. But even if it wasn't, it wouldn't su survive a hot war. These, as we've just said, these machines are incredibly complex and, 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 and sensitive. So the, the idea that then China doesn't actually care if TSMC goes makes war more likely. I think that's the idea of a, a geopolitical kind of implication. Yeah, I mean, if TSMC blew up tomorrow, we'd all be basically we'd be about three years away from going back to using Nokia bricks. You could not rebuild TSMC in a hurry anywhere else. So, so it takes there are decades and billions of dollars to do these kinds of things. So, like. if you put yourself in the shoes of like a geo geopolitical policymaker and you're looking at China through an adversarial lens, you've kind of got a potential trade off here, which is that if you continue to allow China to buy things like at the very peak of technology, then you are effectively enabling the growth of their tech sector and enabling them to become a more powerful competitor. But you retain their dependence on Western tech. If China felt like it could always, or it was, it was always going to get ASML tech, no one in China would build is going to spend you know half a trillion dollars trying to rebuild ASML if they're not worried about it. So it gives you the option of threatening them with it, or it kind of it makes disconnection more threatening. The other, the flip side of the argument is that if you cut them off, you hamstring their technological development for now, but push them towards greater self-sufficiency if they can get it. So it's kind of like, are you shooting them in the are you shooting them in the leg? 
today, but giving up your one bullet that you could point at their head in the future. Yeah, I, I think, and I think, it, okay, putting myself in a position of the person who says that this is the right policy to take now is that that dichotomy is right, but it mistakes what China's actually doing. I think the argument would be that China is, is has been trying to develop a technological mm. sort of independence for a while now. They've had a made in, a made in 2025, so made in China 2025 policy for at least five or six years. So I think the argument would be, hey, they, they, they are aware of this reliance on Western technology makes them less able to do the things they want to do in the world. So they've been moving towards that anyway, where we spent a long time trying to bring them into the international fold and make them part of the connected world, all that kind of stuff. That they, they were alive to that. They re, they've been moving away from it. So we can't keep trying that. We've got to now, like, the longer we wait, the less damage we do to their technological sector, the, clo the quicker they compete with us. So let's do it now. That would be the argument that says this is the right policy. And as you said, the, the, the other argument is just like, the less reliant they are, the more likely a genuinely like a conflict happens, I guess. Yeah, that might not be them sort of directly attacking the West, but it could be them flexing their muscles and not being afraid of a of an embargo or a boycott or anything like that. It diminishes the the policy the policy toolkit to threaten them with effectively or to cajole them into cooperation. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. I think another angle, I think you know the a, a, a persistent critique of a lot of modern US security policy is that it is becoming increasingly difficult to separate things that they are doing for solely strategic reasons versus things that they are doing to commercially benefit US companies, to create jobs in the US and so forth. This is something that trade nerds like me are constantly furrowing our brows about. But the the Europe angle is interesting because the the Biden administration did this directly with the Dutch and the Japanese to sort of make sure Nokia and Nokia is covered by this too. But they went to the Nikon. Uh, Nikon. Nikon. Yeah. But I, I Nikon. get them mixed up all the time too. <laughs> I just old school technology. Oh yeah, he's got uh, a camera. Yeah. <laughs> before my phone was everything in the world. So before um there was a sense of like they went to directly to the Netherlands rather than through the EU machinery. And that I think both reflects it's interesting that they were able to succeed in that regard. It's interesting that, that they- my question to you. Do you think that the EU kind of thankfully said, yeah, go for your life, but we don't want to be involved in it because of the China relationship? Or like you, you, you're much more across the EU politics than I am. I, my strong suspicion is that, I mean, this is all kind of security policy stuff that, that, that is devolved in the EU. So the Netherlands obviously had the ability to do this. Yeah. I mean, my sense is the Biden administration believes that it can talk to countries like the Netherlands that have a sort of fairly conservative, that, that they more easily than they can talk to the EU as a whole. Um, I think there is also a sense in Washington that even following the invasion of Ukraine, the European Union is not as bought into the idea that we should be using commerce against geostrategic adversaries or that China is a geostrategic adversary as Washington's. Certainly harms the EU's relationship with the US. Do you think that there's going to be some, I mean, you know, some element of like, hey, don't just go and pick off our members, you know, in the same way that if the EU went to 
Texas and did something that the, the federal government didn't want? Do you, I mean, I know it's a bad analogy, but is there any of that element at play? I, I mean, I suspect so, because the Chinese are not going to necessarily make the distinction. The, right. the China, like this is going to have implications for the EU-China relationship um, and what the external action service of the EU is hearing in addition to kind of the Netherlands-China relationship. I will say that a lot of commentators have noted that the Chinese response to this has been pretty muted. Yes. They put out a, a fairly kind of like, oh, I hope people kind of come around to doing things the free markets way. They haven't lashed out by, for example, restricting exports of rare earths, which would be a kind of potential tit-for-tat counterpunch. One, yeah. one... Mm-hmm. Go, go ahead, sorry. No, no, please. I, I was going to say, I think that's a... I mean, we don't have time to get into that right now, but I think that's a very interesting observation because there is this sense that China is trying to moderate its foreign policy from the previous war wolf warriors who were kind of very antagonistic tr- Trumpian style, if I may use that kind of <laughs> that description, to a much more moderate kind of, hey, we are global players, Davos is important, global, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And the change really was almost on a dime after Xi Jinping in October last year kind of solidified his power over the apparatus and sort of maybe felt less of a need to you know, politic and be and be rhetorically bombastic. But I also think more than just like domestic politics, I think it's a recognition from China that the US can, the US and the West can still really hurt China's development now and that they've maybe gone a little bit too early with the, the bombastic approach because this stuff will hurt China. So what they're trying to do is say, don't make it worse, don't fan the flames, let's just not give them any reason to kind of come back and do more. So if we, if we ban rare earths, then maybe the, that that convinces the EU to do something themselves. So it's kind of like crap and we'll deal with it, but let's not make it worse yet. Yeah. And I think it also coincides with the Chinese economy running into some, some headwinds, some pretty serious headwinds we've talked about on the show last year, but kind of just between COVID and just larger economic issues. Um, And interestingly, we definitely don't have time to get into this now, but belt and road disbursements the disbursements that are the the money that is being spent under the Chinese Belt and Road, their flagship global development friendship program, where they were going to build infrastructure all over the world and cement their status as like a global power throughout Africa, the Central Asia. The disbursements have absolutely fallen off a cliff in the last two years, and they don't seem to be trending back up. So there is there there might be the sense that the Chinese are, as you say, taking a half step back from belligerence and going maybe maybe we're not quite ready to take on the whole the whole west mono a mono just yet we've got some, some some things to deal with at home and it'll be fascinating to watch how this kind of escalating race for the future of tech manifests and i'm sure uh, international intrigue will keep us updated in uh, a 3 minute read or less in our inbox We'll do our best at summarizing that in three minutes, but yeah, exactly. You can, you can at least get an entry into what you need to know. All right. Well, that, I was determined that we finish our first show on time and God almighty, despite like 45 minutes of balloon jokes, we have managed to get there. John is off to go and get his BB gun and a procurement deal with the Pentagon. For now, thank you so much for watching. As always, we would love it if you dropped a like, a subscribe, a comment to tell us what we're doing wrong with our lives or what we got wrong about chips, which I don't know what the character limit is on YouTube, but it will probably take you a lot of words. But we'd love to to learn. A thread. A a thread, yeah. 
which which you can now monetize if you are a subscriber to Twitter Blue. Congratulations. We will be releasing this episode and all future episodes as a podcast shortly after so that you can really hear us but not see us, which is apparently uh, a very popular... Yeah, yeah, God. We keep getting requests from our families, which is grim. Can I say one thing before we wrap up too? Of course. We get a couple of questions this week, including one interesting one about Russia and China's relationship. I think what we're going to do in the future is you know, probably fewer balloon jokes at the start and, and carve out some time for a little extra section at the end here. Maybe we'll do a specific question and answer episode if we get enough questions, but folks who've written Twitter questions or responded to threads, please know that we are seeing what you're asking and we will get to it. It, it you know, it might just be a little bit random. Yeah, we will. We will absolutely do our best. The engagement's really why we do this. So thank you so much. As always, please do subscribe to International Intrigue. The link will be everywhere, including on your screen in just a minute. I'm Dimitri, and with me is John, and thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next week.